Let's return this morning to Colossians chapter 1, noticing verses 19 through 23 in a message that I've entitled, Reconciled on the Cross. As you turn to Colossians chapter 1, I'd just say and point out that as we try to study through and preach through these epistles, it can be a great challenge to find natural parts of the context to use as our breaks to stop one message and begin the next. I guess it's always easier to find a place to begin the next message, but the difficulty went the week before as you found a place to end the previous message. As you notice in the English translations before us, the sentence that we're considering today, we actually have a couple of sentences, verses 19 and 20, and then the sentence in our English Bibles that begins in verse 21 actually doesn't end until verse 29. And so, could you imagine trying to take everything and every concept that we find between verses 19 and 29 and and go through all of that in one message? It would probably be about a two and a half hour sermon. So the difficulty is finding places to naturally start and stop. As I was reading this this past week and studying on it, reflecting on it, there's actually a great breaking point in verse 23 as that verse comes to an end. It ends in a semicolon in our Bibles, but this is actually the end of a paragraph and the beginning of a new paragraph in the Textus Receptus from which the King James is translated. So that's where we break this today. So yes, it's the same context, and we'll consider an extension of what we study today next time if the Lord is our helper, but we'll find a nice break in the context in verse 23, which will be the end of what we discuss together today. Let's read these verses together. Verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." Well, if the Lord doesn't bless and the message isn't endowed by power on how you've heard the Word of God read to you, and hearing the Word of God aloud is a great blessing. I was thinking about it as we were drawing nigh to the close of Psalm 119 in our weekly Bible reading that we may be the first primitive Baptist church to ever read through the entirety of the 119th Psalm. It's taken several weeks and months, but that might be a record. Maybe we can get a plaque for that. From this passage today, Colossians 1, 19 through 23, there are three basic thoughts that we want to consider with you. Number one, we want to revisit the concept of the incarnation. That is to say, the second person of the Godhead, taking upon him the form of human flesh, being made like unto his brethren, the word being made flesh, dwelling among us and walking Among us, and as we do, we want to notice a special part of the relationship between Father and Son. And I think that some of the things that we discuss in brief 
will be helpful and provide some clarity in the different portions of God's Word that consider the relationship between the Father and the Son. Maybe I can leave a question in your mind as we introduce that particular point to you that we'll come back to. Is Father and Son, or the Father and the Son in the Trinity, you know, in the Trinity there's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, these three are one. Is there complete co-equalness between the persons of the Godhead, or is the Son in some sense subordinate to the Father? Now, that's an important question. It's a very important theological question, and we'll try to answer that from Scripture in your hearing today. Number two, we want to consider, obviously, from this beautiful portion of Scripture, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in shedding His blood upon the cross and the satisfaction of the Father in the shedding of His Son's blood, the fact that we have salvation through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, His work upon the cross. And then number three, lastly, we want to consider briefly the doctrine of assurance. If you notice, chapter 1 and verse 23 begins with the word if. And as we read through that, I hope you wondered if. If, what, what would the place of if be in that particular language as we're talking about a subject that we know is a settled matter? It is finished, a finished work. Why then does the word it appear in this passage? And So from that, we want to discuss with you the doctrine of assurance, but as we do, we want to give you some nice clarity and balance on that subject as we look at the last passage that we'll look at today, verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1. Now, so far in this epistle, we have introduced the epistle with Paul's notes on spreading the gospel, the purpose of the gospel in our lives, learning about salvation, He's talked about their love, what he has learned about them, their faithful pastor. He has focused on the identity of Christ, the salvation that Christ has brought. And last week, we looked at Christ as the great head of the church. Christ is the creator of the world. By him were all things made, things in heaven, things in earth, whether they be physical or even things such as reigns and principalities and powers and Because of that, as the great head of the church, he ought to have preeminence in all that we do. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All fullness there has reference to the fullness of the Godhead being there as the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, For in him dwelleth, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment, and this is something that we've said before in this series. You have a God that is everywhere present and nowhere absent. A God that dwells as far as his personal presence in a place that is called the third heaven, a place that we assume to be, all spiritual and not physical because he dwelled there for eternity past, you have a God that is too great for creation to handle, that man cannot even look upon and live because man is sinful and he is holy and righteous. And yet, in that man, Christ Jesus, dwelt, as we read here, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Contained, if you will, in that man, Christ Jesus, was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
From Hebrews 1, we talked recently about the fact that he's the express image of the person of God. The express image of his person. The word express means manifest. He's literally God manifest in human flesh. Now that begs the question in our mind, how can the God so great that the universe can't contain him be a human being, incarnate flesh and blood and bone and hair that began as an embryo and grew and was born and learned to walk and learned to talk and ate and hungered and needed to be changed and all the other parts of human life, all the other parts, hunger, thirst, pain, sorrow, all of that applied to him in this life. How can the God that the universe can't contain become a human being? Well, if you want the answer to that question, I'm sorry, you're going to be disappointed because Paul himself wrote to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. And by godliness, he doesn't mean being a godly person. He means that Christ was God manifest in human flesh, that Christ is verily God and at the same time verily man. He's not half God and half man. He's not a demigod, but he's completely God and completely man. And so from Colossians 1, it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell. Now, I want to focus just a moment of time on this phrase, it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father. As we think about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're very clear to point out that These three persons are three persons, and yet the three are one, that is to say one God, not three gods, and each of the three persons of the Godhead is God. The Father's not a third of God, the Son is not a third of God, and the Holy Spirit is not one-third of God. But the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, there's one God, and this one God exists in three persons, and you just say... you. I don't understand a thing that you just said. Well, great is the mystery of godliness. You can't understand the Trinity. You can't understand God and His fullness, but we trust one day we will know Him even as we are known. The three persons of the Trinity, hear me very carefully, are co-eternal and co-equal. From our earlier message in Colossians on the nature of Christ, we learned that Christ is the creator, he's the origin, he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. But Christ, as far as the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, God's eternal Son, and the Word of God that was made flesh, he had no beginning, he is eternal. There is no difference between Father and Son in terms of substance or essence. They are of the same substance, the same essence. The Son of God is verily God. But when we discuss the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity seem to, are revealed in Scripture to, have distinct roles as it relates to salvation. So many times God the Father represents God's sovereignty. He represents God's agenda in the world. What do we pray when when we pray. We pray, our Father, which art in heaven, and then thy will be done in heaven and in earth. The Father often represents God's prerogative in the world. The Son 
is our Savior sent into the world, God's only begotten Son, eternally God's only begotten Son. And He sent into the world with the mission of dying on the cross to save God's people from their sins. And that's the revealed role of the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The role of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is to quicken, to regenerate God's children, and as they are filled with the Spirit, and this happens over and over in our lives, it's why we sing, we speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart, and as we do, we are filled with the Holy Ghost over and over again. As this happens, the Spirit engages in one of His roles in our lives. And so we find these distinct roles of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but at all times there's complete harmony between the persons of the Godhead, and they are very clearly in Scripture revealed to us to be co-equal and co-eternal. Now, how many of you can remember the word co-equal? How many times have we said it today? How many times did we say it the other day? We said it a lot, and I want you to know that word, co-equal, co-eternal. But notice this phrase, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, some people will see things such as that, and they will say that it appears that the Son is in some sense subordinate to the Father. Well, if the Son is subordinate to the Father, then in some sense the Father is of greater power and authority than the Son, and if that be the case, then they are not co-equal. Does that make sense? So to be co-equal, there can be no subordination of the Son as far as the Trinity is concerned. What then do we do with passages that have that phrase or similar phrases? In Jesus' personal ministry, over and over, he says, I came not to do mine own will, John 6, but what? The will of the Father which has sent me. And so over and over and over again, Jesus himself makes those statements. What do we do with this apparent tension between this concept of being co-equal, I and my Father are one, John 10, but also what appears to be subordination where He always does the will of His Father. In other words, if the three persons of the Godhead are co-eternal and co-equal, why then do we find language regarding the Father's pleasure or the Son's obedience? It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Well, the answer to that, when Christ was incarnate, He was submissive to the will of the Father. When Christ was, what was the word that I used? Incarnate, He was submissive to the will of the Father. We use the words ontological trinity versus economical trinity to draw this distinction. You say, what in the world did you just say? Ontological, ontological. The word ontology refers to the study of being, okay? The phrase ontological trinity is a phrase or a term that theologians use to convey the concept that eternally, in glory, there's no distinction in the authority between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the ontological trinity. At the same time, the phrase the economical trinity is used 
to refer to the interaction between father and son as the son, as Christ, and as man was here. So is the son any less the second person of the Godhead when he's incarnate? No. Now, he laid aside his glory, John 17, but he didn't lay aside his nature. He didn't lay aside his deity. He didn't lay aside his divinity. He was, yea, verily God as he was incarnate. But as we see so many times, he submits to the will of the Father because now as a man, as a man, being a human being, it is his role to submit to the Father because all men ought to be submissive to God and obey him and be obedient. That's literally creation from the Garden of Eden forward. When God makes man, he instructs him and commands him and gives him a penalty for disobedience. And so as a man, Christ is submissive to the Father, and he obeys the Father in all things to a jot and a tittle of the law. In every way, at all times, the Son is submissive to the Father. And so we make a distinction between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity, that is, eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal, and the trinity as it relates to Father and Son, as the Son was always obedient to the Father, the economical trinity. Now, is this important? Yes, because the alternative to that is a concept known as the eternal subordination of the Son. Okay, ESS. The eternal subordination of the Son is an error. It is a very great error. Now, it's kind of funny, and I say this to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. You're familiar with the ESV Bible, which is a very, very popular Bible in today's time. One of the men that worked on the translation committee of that Bible believed in the eternal subordination of the Son, and so smart aleck KJV people such as myself will sometimes refer to the ESV as the eternal subordination version. Well, eternal subordination is not biblical. It's an error. We draw a distinction between... The second person of the Godhead in the Trinity in the realms of glory and his role as a human being, God incarnate, submissive to the Father in all things. We do this also as it relates to the person of Christ. He's completely God and completely man. As completely God, he knows all things. He has omniscience. He has omnipotence. And yet as completely man, body, soul, and spirit man... He says, no man knows the time of the second coming, not even the Son, but the Father only, not the angels, but the Father only. How can both be true? He's one person, one being with two natures at his incarnation. He has two natures, the nature of the divine, the second person of the Godhead, and the nature of humanity with the exception of sin. Perfect humanity there as the person of Christ Jesus. In the book of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, we read the sentence that as he was here in the world, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And I think that that particular statement, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, I think that makes the point very well that there's a difference in his role as he's incarnate, and his role for eternity past as a second person of the Godhead. That's one that makes preachers scratch their heads. How could the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God learn? Because he became a man, and as a man, he learned. But you think about it this way too. 
for eternity past, co-eternal, co-equal, there was never an opportunity for obedience because God is one in all. But as he's incarnate, as a man, he can learn obedience because he obeyed the Father's commands perfectly at all times. He was, in a word, impeccable. There was no potential for sin or corruption in the person of Christ Jesus because he is the God-man. He's the God-man, the perfect, the only perfect human being that ever lived. I'm sorry if you thought that was you. It's Christ, the only perfect human being that ever lived. I think I said I would use, I think I used the word briefly when I was talking about explaining verse 19. But I wanted to clarify, it pleased the Father. That gave us a great opportunity to talk about the fact that the Son is submissive to the will of the Father, even though eternally the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal. It pleased the Father that in Him, in Christ, should all the fullness dwell. Which leads directly into the concepts that we read in verses 20 through 22. What is the purpose of the incarnation of the Son of God? Why did Christ come into the world? Because God loved a people so much, these people were alienated from Him, they were his enemies by their nature and by their actions. He loved them. He wanted them in glory. They needed to be saved. And the only one who could do that work was God himself. And so God gives. Think about the gift-giving God who gave the very best that could ever be given his only begotten son to come into this world and to die for God's people. And so it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. This is the incarnation of God who was sent into the world to make peace through the blood of His cross. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, I say, by Him I say, whether they be things in heaven, excuse me, and things in earth, or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Verses 20 through 22 you could summarize as peace with God through the cross. Peace with God through the cross. In these verses, Paul here refers to salvation, or rather the phase of our salvation that occurred on the cross once for all. And when we say all, we mean all who are in Christ. And we talked about this as we considered the great head of the church. And we looked at the church from the perspective of the invisible church, the triumphant church, everyone who's assembled, church means assembly, with God in glory. We looked at it from the perspective of the institution in the world church, and we looked at it from the perspective of this particular church body, every individual church body, that Christ is their head. But as we considered Christ as the head over all the people of God throughout all time, the word that we used there was federal. He's the federal head of his people, and by that he is one representative who represents them all Adam was a federal head over all humanity, all in Adam, all who would be born of Adam. And when he violated the law of God, 
he plunged himself and thereby all of his descendants into sin. And so we are natural-born sinners because of the sin of Adam. He's our federal head. When he sinned and died, we sinned and died in him. We were yet in his loins, as the Bible would say. At the same time, Christ, the great head over his people, as their federal head, when he lived a perfect life and died for us upon the cross of Calvary, he did give life to all who are in him. And so when Adam sins, he dies and death passes upon all in him. When Christ dies, all who are in Christ shall live. There's the first Adam and the second Adam. And there are so many similarities in the story. You can compare the fact that Adam's transgression begins in a garden. Christ, before going to the cross of Calvary, is in a garden. You have the interaction there between the bride, the wife of Adam, who is Eve, and her interaction in that. And then in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have who is there present with him? His bride, his bride, the people that he loves, his beloved So many similarities between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam brings death. The last Adam, the next federal head, the last federal head brings life through death. He suffered what Adam brought on your behalf after living a perfect life and being guiltless that you and I would be made righteous through him. He took our penalty upon himself upon the cross of Calvary. He is our great head, our federal head. Paul refers to the phase of salvation in this run of verses that relates to the cross. And we said, once for all, once for all. As we break down the doctrine of salvation, we know that there's a covenant phase before the foundation of the world that is attributed to God the Father. There's the vital phase of salvation that occurs in our own individual lives. The moment when the Holy Spirit, and this is attributed to the Holy Spirit, When the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart, when you were dead in sin, and yet He quickens you, He resurrects you to life in Christ. And that's the vital phase of salvation. There's coming a final phase of salvation, when the dead shall be raised incorruptible, when our bodies will be glorified, when we'll be carried home to be with Him forevermore and never to be separated from Him by sin or any other thing. And that's the final phase of salvation. But the phase of salvation that we refer to as the cross or on the cross that took place upon the cross is redemption. When the Lord Jesus Christ died as our head, in our stead, we as his body. Remember the metaphor from last week. He is the head, we are the body. When he died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. Okay? We were there, represented upon the cross of Calvary. People sing the hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's not in our hymnals. Don't look. But they sing, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And as a little kid, I'm thinking around, you know, some of these people might have been. They look. No, I wasn't. But at the same time, yes, we were. We were there represented. And truth be told, without grace in the heart, we would have been there like those that cried out, Crucify him, release unto us Barabbas. At the same time, some of us might be more, far more like Barabbas than any other person there, the murderer that is set free. Well, in some ways, I guess we were there. But there's one way that I trust that we were there when they crucified him. We were there represented by him upon the cross. When he hung there, 
God looks on him as if he were looking at you and he were looking at me. And he judged him as if he had lived our lives. And at the same time, because he had never committed a sin, he's the Father's only begotten that at all times he was pleased with, his beloved Son, as he said at his baptism. As he looked at him, and this beloved Son of his died, having committed no iniquity, he gives us, at that moment in human history, the entire family at once gives them the righteousness of Christ in his eyes and in his sight. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, referring to the legal, redemptive phase of salvation. This is the doctrine that's not expressly mentioned here, but it is the doctrine of justification. That we have justification through or by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Having made peace, having made peace prior to the death of Christ in a legal sense, prior to salvation in a vital sense, we are in a state of enmity against God. We are not at peace with God without Christ. Before Christ died, what's the opposite of peace? The opposite of peace is war. You know, we, we tremble at the thought of war with other countries that have nuclear weapons. And, and most of the countries in the world, if not all of the countries in the world, tremble at the thought of war with the United States. As someone with a son old enough to be drafted and another one soon to be old enough to be drafted. And in this crazy world, they may start drafting girls, which, by the way, you didn't ask, but I think it's atrocious. Nobody asked, but I said it anyway. It really scares me to think about having war with a great nuclear power. What if we have some long, drawn-out World War III? Will my children have to go fight and die in trenches as in World War II and World War I? That thought ought to keep you up at night from time to time. Imagine war with the almighty, omnipotent, king of all the universe... The judge of all, the Lord, who is holy and righteous and offended with your sin. What do you do in that war? You don't win that war. At the second coming of Christ, there will be people who are unsaved, his enemies, whose sins are not taken away. And when Christ returns, they will be hiding in the rocks and caves of the earth to escape the wrath of the Lamb. What a war to be on the losing side of. And yet, Christ on His cross has brought peace. Now, amazingly so, and this ought to cause our hearts to melt within us, if you're not moved with emotion thinking about what your Savior has done for you, then... For heaven's sake, turn off all the other stuff in this world that distracts you and focus on your sin for a few hours. Your Savior came in this world to suffer the wrath of God to make peace between you and His Father that you had offended. He's justly offended at you. You know, in this world today, we don't think it's ever right when somebody's justly offended at us. 
We always have 15,000 excuses why we were right for being wrong. There's no excuses. It's God. He's justly offended. We deserve eternal separation from his fellowship in the lake of fire in full wrath. And yet he came into the world to suffer the father's wrath to make peace between us and his father so that we can be with him for all of eternity in fellowship and love and joy and harmony. That's what Christ did upon the cross. He came and he suffered to bring peace between an offended God and the people that he loves who had offended him. I don't know about you, but if somebody breaks into my house and hurts my family... I'm not thinking of ways I can suffer that penalty in jail or worse for them. I'm asking for vengeance and justice. That's exactly what the Lord did. He sent His only begotten Son to die for the salvation of His people, that there would be peace between them. Peace is such a a pleasant thing. It's such an incredible thing. Aren't you thankful for peace in the church body here at Flint River? where we're not arguing and fighting and backbiting and grumbling and complaining about one another, but we just love each other for better or worse till death do us part, right? That's the way we need to envision church membership, that no matter what happens, we're going to try as hard as we can to have peace. Occasionally, that means amputating a gangrenous limb. But even that is done that the body might have peace. If you ever have a gangrenous limb, you probably would understand that metaphor. Some of you might have had appendixes removed and tonsils removed and gallbladders removed and other organs removed. And if you ever have an organ removed, you know that there's great peace in the body. When that's all said and done, the pain is over. How precious is peace in a church or a home or between friends? Christ has brought peace between you and God. Through what? He made peace through the blood of of his cross. You know, even in the Old Testament, you have foreshadowings of the cross before it had been invented. The Old Testament, the law says, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. They didn't hang men on trees yet. But he was talking about the curse that Christ would experience for you and for me. Paul utilizes that in the book of Galatians. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. My bones are out of joint. They stare at me. They're exposed, referring to the fact that he'd been scourged and hanged upon a tree, being crucified. Zechariah, we read, where they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Wednesday night, we discussed that together. He was nailed to a cross. It was the Father's will, it was God's will, in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in complete harmony agree, agree on the terms of this contract, this covenant, that the Son would come into the world and die upon a cross, and there on the cross would save God's people from their sins. You know, we have to be very clear with that subject. He was sent by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God's purpose is that Christ would come into the world and die on a cross at that time. 
At the same time, every single bit of sin that man did to him was purely on those men and not in any way caused by God. But it was the Father's will that His Son would come into the world and offer Himself a sacrifice as our high priest and the Lamb that was slain to the Father upon the cross of Calvary, and He made peace through the blood of His cross. By Him, and by the way, the work that Christ wrought on the cross is a finished work, and it was a work that was finished by Him. If there's one thing the New Testament and the Old Testament is absolutely emphatic about, is that redemption is accomplished exclusively through the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot help Him redeem His people because I am an unworthy person who needs redemption. But He, by Himself, when He had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. He has forever perfected them that are sanctified through the offering of His body, as we see here in so many other places. Once for all, that is all that is in Him. By Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And that's interesting language to me. Things in earth or things in heaven. He has reconciled all things unto Himself. What's interesting about that to me is that it would use the word things and not the word people. And so I did some investigating from the original language, and the reason that it uses the word things there instead of people there is because it uses a simple uh, neuter definite article. In Greek, sometimes definite articles can be used as pronouns, substitute as pronouns, and that's exactly what we find here. And so it's translated accurately, things, because it's neuter rather than he or she, simply things. What does he mean by that, though? He means all the people that belong to him in earth and all the people that belong to him in heaven, all of his people in heaven or earth have their sins taken away by Christ through the blood of his cross. Through the blood of his cross, all of the sins of all of his people, whether in heaven or earth, are taken away. Now here's an interesting thought. If David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel... Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, name any of them you want to. If they're sinful and sinners, why then are they gathered unto their people with God in glory prior to the time of the cross before Jesus technically, legally took away their sin? And the answer to that question is the forbearance of God from Romans chapter 3. Because God had forbearance and such confidence in His Son, yea, perfect, perfect confidence in His Son, that His Son would die for the people of God, God in His omniscience, through forbearance, receives Elijah in a chariot of fire. Enoch being translated that he should not see death. All of the men and women of faith of old, God's people, His saints, those that wandered as strangers and pilgrims, they were received into glory because God knew that Christ, that He knew that His Christ, His Son, would come into this world and save His people from their sins. And that, again, is the doctrine of God's forbearance. He made peace through the blood of His cross to reconcile all things unto Him. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Things in earth or things in heaven. Not talking about astronauts. There were no astronauts in Colossians. You know, it's getting to the point now where you can just pay $100,000 to take a taxi to space. But 
Things in earth and heaven there has reference to those who had gone on to be with him. He reconciled all of his people in earth and heaven upon the cross. What does it mean to reconcile? Well, we've already focused on that as we talked about God sending his son to bring peace. We have peace with God. The word reconcile means to resolve or settle a difference. What a difference. What a difference it needs to be resolved. One that could have severed us from the fellowship and joy of God in the lake of fire for eternity. Think about it. Hell is just as long as heaven. That's terrifying. It ought to be terrifying. And yet, he has brought reconciliation, settling the difference. As we'll see in the next verse, verse 21, we were what? Alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works, and yet now hath he reconciled. The concept of reconciliation speaks to the issue of alienation. I didn't say that that way to rhyme, but these two words in the same. Reconciliation speaks to alienation. When you are alienated from someone, you are estranged. What is an alien? Now, I know that we watch sci-fi movies and everybody thinks Independence Day and Men in Black and, and things such as that. But as we talk about actual aliens, an alien is someone who's from another country. When people break into the country illegally, we refer to them as what? Illegal aliens. When I was a little boy and they would talk about aliens being apprehended, you can imagine where my mind went. Aliens apprehended? Mom, are they talking about Martians? No, Ben, they're not talking about Martians. There should have been a sitcom written about the questions I asked mom watching TV, misunderstanding things as a kid, you know, rabbit ears and fuzzy TV, and the only thing we get is the news. Alienated means to be separated or to be a stranger or an estranged person, an outsider. Our sins had estranged us from God, alienated us from God, and Christ on the cross brought reconciliation. Now, you and I are ambassadors for Christ. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We teach reconciliation, and we exhort people to reconcile themselves back to God. But reconciliation, to be reconciled as an enemy, an alien, and a stranger, only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, by Him. He's made peace with God through shedding His blood upon the cross of Calvary. We this past Wednesday, we're in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14, and we talked about how there's a fountain of salvation open. And we talked about the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has washed us whiter than snow by the application of His shed blood on our behalf. We were sometime alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works, hath He now reconciled, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameable and unreprovable in his sight. That sounds familiar. It sounds a lot like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, doesn't it? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins? It's very similar. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your body, or in your mind rather, by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. But Ephesians 2 speaks of the vital phase of salvation. Colossians 1 verse 21 speaks of the legal phase of salvation with 
an application on the way that you were in your life before that work was applied directly to you in the new birth. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies, let's focus on this next phrase, in your mind. We so often think about the works done with the hands and the feet or the tongue. But this alienation, this enmity, oh, it's, it's not merely in the hands. It's in the very mind. The very core of our being is corrupt through the sin of Adam. You know, it's amazing then, what does God do through the Holy Spirit in the new birth? He writes His laws upon our mind. You have a change of mind at the new birth. God writes His laws upon your heart and your mind, your inward parts. His law is written according to 2 Corinthians, by the very finger of God upon the fleshy tables of your heart. There aren't literal laws written on the fleshy tables of your heart. You understand it's a metaphor for God's morality being given to you, the conviction of sin being given to you, a knowledge inherently of right and wrong from the inside out being sparked in you at the moment of salvation. It's why sin causes so much guilt in the heart of a child of God. It's why the gospel is so sweet to the child of God when they hear it. You notice you're at enmity where? In your mind. A problem that begins on the inside and goes out rather than the outside going in. This is a problem at the very core of our being. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. Now you notice that the sentence before that doesn't have punctuation as it comes to the close because it continues into verse 22. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Jesus Christ had to die. Sometimes people misunderstand the doctrine of election and they say, if, if Jesus, if God elected you before the world began, then why did Jesus have to die? Because we were yet alienated from Him. And it took a perfect sacrifice being offered on our behalf to make us holy and without blame before Him in love. Ephesians chapter 1. Which begins, according as He has chosen us in Him, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. How are sinners holy and without blame before God in love? The Son of God shed His blood for us and died upon the cross of Calvary. And so election doesn't make the work of Christ moot or without point. It makes it necessary. Election makes the death of Christ necessary. Because God the Father chose, God the Son had to redeem for us to be with Him in glory. And the Holy Spirit has to regenerate. Our soul and spirit has to be changed. You ever think about the fact that that's what goes to be with the Lord at death? What part does He change? What does He do? Our spirits are quickened in Christ Jesus, spiritually resurrected at the moment of salvation. Let's focus on a couple of these words in verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death, by the way, Christ had to die. 
Anyone who says that somehow salvation was accomplished before the death of Christ is confused. There have been people that said, well, it happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, it didn't. There have been people that said it happened in the three hours of darkness and was over before he died. No, it wasn't. Christ must needs have died and yet risen again. This might be the most diversely quoted sermon from various passages through the New Testament and the Old Testament that we've given in quite a while. But this is the gospel. I was thinking about it reading this last night. This is the gospel. Christ was incarnate. Christ died to take away our sins. And because of that, we're no longer alienated. We're no longer enemies. But focusing on these two words, we are unblameable and unreprovable in His sight through the death of His Son. Unblameable, it's a a simple word. Unblameable, without blame. And then this word unreprovable means not able to be reproved or corrected. Now, do you feel to be unreproved or uncorrected? Is your life perfect where you never need reproof? If, if that were the case, why did Paul tell Timothy that the Word of God is profitable for reproof? Why did he tell Timothy to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, speaking of his role with the church? No, in our life, we need reproof and correction. I'm thinking of a Latin phrase. I think it's simul justus et peccator. And I probably didn't pronounce that right, but nobody knows because nobody speaks Latin anymore. What that phrase means, I believe its origin, its origin is with Luther. I believe it was one of his statements. If I'm not mistaken, we'll Google it later. Simul justus, simultaneously justified et peccator, were simultaneously justified yet sinful. In the eyes of God, we are viewed as unreprovable. Listen to me. Does your heart convict you and trouble you over your sins? Because we need reproof every day of our lives. That's what preaching is about. But in God's sight, listen, you stand unrebukable, unreprovable, unaccused is one synonym for unreprovable. Unaccused? Do you know who the accuser of the brethren is? It ain't Jesus. He said that's not good grammar, but it's true. The accuser of the brethren is Satan. Who do you think gets in your ear and afflicts you and reminds you of your past, the way that you used to be before Christ, the things that plague you that you know that you did and God knows that you did and Satan knows that you did? Oh, Satan accuses and accuses and accuses us. He reminds us of the things that we did. But in the sight of God through Christ in a legal and positional sense, you stand unaccused. Unaccused. You're justified. You're innocent. You're not guilty. Because you're perfect? No, because Jesus died for your sins. Amen. Verse 23. Now here's the scary one. Whoa, what do we mean by this? All of this being true, and then Paul says, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am a minister. If, if, 
Just to remind you, salvation is by grace. And that's not up for debate. The same man who wrote this word if, it's not actually the word if because he didn't write in English, but the word that translates if in English wrote so powerfully on salvation by grace, not of works. Salvation being by grace, it is not conditioned on our actions. Salvation being by grace, if it began with grace, it will be finished by grace. After all, Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. What he starts, he finishes. He that begun a good work in you will what? Perform it under the day of the Lord, Philippians chapter 1. What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Romans chapter 8, nothing. Jesus' very own words in John chapter 6, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And again, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If it be by grace, it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. So what then do we mean by this word if here? Good question. Three points I want to give you on this. Don't get scared. They're brief. Paul does later warn people that assembled with this group not to abandon Christianity and Christ for angel-worshiping cults. There are people who were at risk of leaving for angel-worshiping cults. Which brings us to point two. If I leave and cease worshiping God and loving Christ and seeking and serving Him, what do I lose? Do I lose salvation? No, you don't lose salvation. It's eternal. But what I do lose is my assurance of it. When you come to passages like this, There's a one-sentence reply that I like to give. This is an assurance text. This is an assurance text. You have assurance. You have assurance that everything is right between you and God when you don't quit Christianity and join an angel-worshiping cult, specifically to the Colossians. When David sinned with Bathsheba, what did he lose? The joy of his salvation. That's his assurance. Over and over, New Testament writers write that we would have what? Full assurance. I want your heart to be assured that everything is right between you and God. That doesn't happen when people abandon the church and go join cults. Number three, there are people such as Simon Magus who exist. Who is Simon Magus? In Acts chapter 8, he joins in with the church because it was a popular, powerful movement. He saw the Holy Spirit on display. He was a sorcerer and a magician, and he wanted that power. And so he goes and tries to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money from Peter. And Peter tells him, your money perish with you. I perceive that you don't have part nor lot in this matter. You're in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. In other words, Peter says, I think you're a goat. That's how to win friends and influence people. And Simon Magus went on to found Gnosticism. Some people believe that Colossians might be written to address proto-Gnosticism. John addresses that. He talks about people who left because they were antichrists. Antichrists that wouldn't join the Gnostics? Well, that frames the discussion a little bit, doesn't it? The context of that if. 
Some of these people left because they were like Simon Magus. They didn't care a thing in the world about Christ. People sometimes hang around the church because it gives them political power or some other type of power or influence in the world. Now, that doesn't happen a whole lot with us. There's not a whole lot to be gained from a carnal mind from driving out to 641 Moontown Road and attending Flint River Primitive Baptist Church on Sunday morning. We don't have the movers and the shakers here. They might have been moving and shaking during the ball game last night, but as far as moving up in society, we're, we're really not advantageous. You don't see when politicians from Washington visit town, they don't come here for a photo op. And both parties do that, by the way. And it makes me absolutely sick, and if it ever happens here, they're going to sit in the back. Anyway, I got scripture for that. James talks about that. James talks about that. People like Simon Magus exist. So that's also a part of this word. What happens if an elect, for, uh, an elect person falls into heresy? Just read it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and the double-edged sword. Let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If an elect person falls into heresy or gets swept up by one of these problems the Colossians are dealing with, the foundation of God stands sure. The Lord knows them that are his, even when we don't even when we don't. And so rather than those scenarios, we end today on an exhortation, keep the faith and enjoy fellowship and peace and harmony, love and joy with your Savior as you worship Him because He took away your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this encouraging and at the same time exhorting passage of Scripture. We're so thankful that your Son has died to take away our sins. And we pray, Father, that we would be found faithful enjoying the full benefits of your salvation in our lives, the joy of our salvation that you've given us, Lord, of your salvation that you've given us. Let us, Lord, not be like David that lost that joy and had to Repent in sackcloth and ashes and beg for it back, but let us live in it and experience the peace of God that passeth all understanding each and every day in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for sending your only begotten Son to die for us upon the cross of Calvary. Thank you for the peace and the reconciliation that we have through his blood. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.